This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane, and in the studio with me today is Dr. Ray. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. We're all sounding a bit deaf because Dr. Ray just asked to have the headphones <laughs> turned up. And, and uh, something went wrong. I, I don't know what happened, but when I put mine back on, it was like, whoa, <laughs> okay. Dr. Ewan? Good morning, Dr. Shane. You're well. You well? I am very well, thank you. How are you? I'm, 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 I'm deaf. I've been deaf. <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> uh, Dr. Jen, how are you? Yeah, pardon. Hi. Yeah, Hi. Exactly. Yeah. Howdy, Dr. Shane. I'm excellent, thank you. It's a glorious day out there. I know. The I mean, I think I'd, for all the listeners out there, it is a point of dedication that as as we were all walking into the studio and the the sky was blue and you know the temperature was mild mm. and we walk into Triple R and it's kind of a, it's, it's a dark environment. <laughs> <It> is, <yes. laughs> this tiny little crack through which we can yeah, see some some yeah. light. Well, we can see we can see that it's daylight through the through the window, which is nice. But um, but yeah, we'll be heading out there real soon. Now uh, we're going to get straight into some science news for you, Doctor Ray. What have you got for us, Doctor Shane? I have uh, a nose story. Okay. It's about the schnoz, and I was a little surprised. Uh, first of all, um, actually, it's about bacteria resistance. Um, I, I'm sure a lot of you are aware we're running out of antibiotics, that we haven't really made many discoveries in the last 30, 40 years. Most of our discoveries from antibiotics largely came from nature, from soil bacteria. And then we have things like Staphylococcus aureus, which is also called golden staph, if you don't want to use the biological name, uh, which can develop uh, uh, an antibiotic-resistant strain called methylene-resistant S. aureus or MRSA. Um, and, and so, okay, we're running out of antibiotics. If you get golden staph infections are a problem in hospitals, it's not also not a great idea to feed chickens antibiotics as well because that is one of the things that drives resistance. So um, where do we discover new antibiotics? And, and here's something that's just kind of weird. About 30% of the population has Staphylococcus aureus in their nose. Ooh. And you don't get sick from it. It's on an external membrane, but it actually resides in your nose, um, which is kind of surprising that anything lives there. It's salty, liquid, not much nutrients. No, it's not a great environment um, <laughs> for bacteria <laughs> or people in general. It depends who you are. Okay. I, I've come across some people where there's, you know, there's cocaine, there's uh, all sorts of stuff. You know, they're, they're, every now and then they, you know, they snort laugh when they're they, drinking milk. And... They didn't look at Hollywood noses, did they? No, no, they didn't. <laughs> but, um, but, so 30% of the population has golden staff in their nose. But then the question is, why does the 70% of the population not? Mm. Mm. And, and so scientists started, have been looking at this for a bit, noticing this negative correlation for different bacteria that end up residing in the nose. But they were never really clear about the mechanism. So, uh, reported in Nature this week, researchers from the, I'm gonna get this wrong, the University of Tübingen, or Tübingen in Germany, um, actually found, actually kind of cracked the mechanism of why this is happening. So, of course, what they had to do was sample a lot of snot mm. and do and, 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 and look at the different bacterial populations there. And they actually discovered one bacteria, which was a different type of Staphylococcus. It was Staphylococcus, and this is a great name. Oh, my goodness. He's lost it. He's I've, lost, I've it. lost it. Not, not snotty eye? No, no. Well, it, it's because it's uh, Staphylococcus aureus. Uh, here it is. Sorry. Lugdenenus. Staphylococcus, I know. It just, it's not, it's a great name. But, uh, what they found is this other bacteria, this other Staphylococcus bacteria actually, um, is not around when Arius is there and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And what they actually discovered is Lugdeninus, after a lot of 
hard work where they actually isolated the bacteria and did a lot of genetic modification, actually makes an antibiotic that kills golden staff. Hmm. Uh, and, 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 and they called the, it's a, it's a cyclic peptide, uh, and they actually named it Lugdenin because it was <laughs> from Lugdenin, as, as you would. I suppose they could have gone worse there. Um, anyway, so they actually not only isolated it, they were able to make it synthetically as well and even show that it worked in, vit- in vivo and in vitro as a topical ointment that actually could eradicate golden staff. Oh. And so the potential here is really surprising. Um, now, they still need to figure out the mechanism of which, how that antibiotic works. They think it's membrane lysing for the bacteria, the, how the antibiotic actually kills the bacteria. So there's a little bit more work to be done there. But this is, we've always said, oh, we should look for to nature for more antibiotics. But who, would he, who thought? Looking in the schnoz, <laughs> studying snot, was the way to actually find new bacteria. And because there's, Lugdanus is only in about 10% of the population, and 70% of the population doesn't have golden staff in their nose, they reckon there's probably more types of bacteria there and other possible discoveries as well. Some of the most fascinating science we've actually presented on this show has come from human orifices, <laughs> one and all. <laughs> it is quite amazing just how much we expel and just how useful it can be. Well, you, you guys are ecologists, you know that too. You go around, you pick up the excrement to tell you what's going on. We do a lot of that. You do? Yeah. yeah. Maybe too much. <laughs> well, you, yeah, but, you know, I'm talking about for work, not just... You guys oh, doing it like, just for fun. <laughs> Doctor, you, what have you got for us science-wise? Uh, I'm going to start with a, a number first. Just let you know that in the world, every day, we get rid of 3 million tonnes of solid waste Whoa. per day. So get your head around that for a second. Now, that's oh, a big is, problem. Is this back to the orifice thing or this is... <laughs> no, wait, this is, okay. you know, food scraps, right. solid waste, oh, right? Yep. And getting rid of that waste um, appropriately is really important because if you just dump it mm. and you just leave it in big piles, it can have all sorts of issues with disease transmission. Um, uh, pest animal populations can build up, so rats, which, of course, can transmit disease as well. And so getting rid of waste is a really big problem. And governments all around the world are actually trying to reduce the amount of waste that's being dumped. Now, it turns out, of course, that there's also money to be made of dumping illegally, so much so that the mafia gets into this action even. And so, yes, so, you know, you might actually (laughs) pay a company to get rid of your solid waste, and then they essentially just illegally dump it somewhere. So this is a huge issue, right? Um, it's costing the UK, as an example, three hundred million pounds per year to deal with this issue. It's not insignificant. So there was this really cool study that caught my eye in PLOS One uh, this week from researchers in Spain, um, Joe Navarro and colleagues, where they've actually strapped GPS, so tracking devices, to seagulls to find out where illegal dumping is occurring. So the way this works is, of course, we all know seagulls when you're out for a picnic or something and all of a sudden they just turn up and they want to mm. eat your chips, right? Yeah. And they're all over you like a rash. So what they did was they tracked um, 19 uh, seagulls and they actually look where these um, um, birds are going. And these birds can move over a large area too. So these 19 birds covered in an area of 9,500 square kilometres in their flight, so that's not insignificant. And they moved about 120 k's from their breeding colony. But what they found out really quickly was that these birds actually, through their movement, so they can look at where the animals are moving, of course, in real time by looking at their GPS data, they pinpointed this one location in the landscape, which happened to be a tip that had supposedly been closed for 10 years. Wow but was being illegally used by people when they were dumping food there. And so they thought about this more and more, and they thought, well, hang on, we could actually roll this out, you know, in uh, essentially across Europe and in in many parts of the world, essentially. So you can use avian detectives, in a sense, put a GPS collar on them, potentially (laughs) couple that with a camera, 
Starsky and Hutch haircuts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Surely and actually spy track. Caps. Surely. <laughs> spy goggles. It's very cool. So actually track illegal dumping occurring in parts of the world. So it's got huge applications for reducing this problem. Now, you know, they make lots of really good points that it's it's safer to use these seagulls. You don't want to have to send humans into tips. Tips are really dangerous mm. places. Um, it's cheaper. Um, and you can get better coverage as well because these birds are flying all over the place. And the birds are very good at finding these food resources very mm. quickly. Mm. So if they, if they pop up, you can essentially um, very quickly find out where it is. And then, of course, if you've got GPS movement, then, of course, you can know you know where it's happening. You can call the police and say, hey, someone's dumping food over here. You might want to go and have a look over there. So a very cool, I think, sort of coupling of technology with animals to solve what is a in, not insignificant you know, issue environmentally. So... Very cool. And it's a reason to not be annoyed with seagulls. Exactly. Yeah. Although some people, use. some people freak out now, you know, these people in these illegal industries will be going, looking up, you know, yeah, yeah. any seagulls around. <laughs> <laughs> They're not looking for people anymore. That's They're right. like, can you see girls? They're, you know? they're watching me. They're watching me. Yeah. So you can imagine you could quite easily use this in Melbourne. We have a huge seagull population here. Yeah, so oh, you yeah. could quite easily, you know, take advantage of this in other parts of the world. So, yeah. Yeah. so we're now going to find that the mafia is going to try and work out ways to dump rubbish that is not attractive to seagulls. Well, what I'm guessing is they're going to get... I think that's going on at Brisbane with those tire dumps. Yeah, uh, maybe. They're going to pay the peregrine falcons off, I yeah, think, I to kill the seagulls. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. We've got a hawk. It's going to be fine. You need a lot of hawks, though. Yeah. A lot of seagulls. Lots of seagulls. Well, it's interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Dr. Jen, what do you got for us? All right, I want to talk about brains. You know how we hear all the time that teenage brains are very different to adult brains, and that's why we should excuse teenagers for all sorts of, you know, odd behaviours? <laughs> I, I consider that to be a fact. <laughs> well... Well, you'll be pleased with this study that I want to tell you about that came out this week from the University of Cambridge. They actually mapped the process of a teenage brain becoming an adult brain. So they had 300 people between the age of 14 and 24, chucked them into an MRI and had a look at how the brain actually looks at all of these stages between 14 and 24 to try mm. and map the, you know, map the structural changes that were going on. Um, cause we know that kids have you know, massive dramatic changes in the brain, but the changes at a teenage level are thought to be a little bit more subtle, kind of more of a refinement mm. rather than big changes. But what they found was really interesting. So this refinement is basically two different things going on. One is that the outer layer of the brain, which is called the cortex, um, becomes much thinner. So a whole lot of kind of unused or unwanted connections disappear. They basically just get pruned away and disappear, so it becomes much thinner. So that's the first thing. It's kind of a, an editing process. But then secondly, other uh, nerve connections that are clearly really important get made much more efficient by, you know, the myelin sheath that goes on the outside. That's what we all hear about for MS. You know, that's what's damaged for, mm. for people with MS. That gets laid down so that essentially you're getting rid of connections that you don't want and then the connections that you do want that you're keeping get made much more efficient and much faster. So that's what the process of going from a teenage brain to an adult brain is. And it means that it's kind of a trade-off. You know, you, your brain becomes a lot less flexible because you lose all these potential connections which might have been good, you just haven't used them yet, but what's mm. left is, is very efficient. So it's a really interesting process. But the new thing about this study is that they looked at which areas of the brain get the most editing done to them. And it turns out that these areas in the brain are also the areas in which genes linked to schizophrenia are most strongly expressed. 
And so what the people who, who publish this research are arguing is that perhaps this process of refinement and editing explains why so many mental health disorders first come to light during adolescence because this process of editing and refinement is resulting in errors and the errors are leading to mental health disorders. So for the first time we have a real lead of where to look in the brain to try and understand a whole lot of mental health disorders that mm. maybe it's this process of, of editing that's just going a bit awry because it's not being carried out, you know, quite as it should have been and we're getting errors. Um, and if that's true, if this, if their hypothesis is right, it's fascinating because it suggests that we have a real understanding of why mental health disorders mm. are, are suddenly appearing and maybe what we could do about it. Mm. It's Just interesting stuff. Very mm. interesting study because no one's really mapped the brain across these years before. So. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. A public service announcement too I should put out there. Um, it's not open... Today, today, Triple R, that was yesterday. So uh, I met some lovely families this morning. It was great. But, um, folks, if you're thinking of dropping by, <laughs> today, Please don't. Today, today's not the day. Um, oh, the other one is you, you sent me a message during the week about, or, or on Facebook about these um, Vic Road signs saying, you know, don't drive in Pokemon. Yes. <laughs> and I saw some myself during the weekend. And you know what I'd like to see on those signs? If Get you're re- If you're reading this, you're not looking at the road. <laughs> How about yes. that, Vic Rhodes? <laughs> yeah. it just, it's bizarre to me that we have to do this. And um, it's bizarre that all the signs talking about mobile phone use say avoid mobile phone use. How about it's illegal, don't pick up your phone, yeah. not just avoid. I mean, yeah, if you yeah. have to make a call, pull over. Yeah, I mean, I mean you get it's pulled over by wording. the cops and they say, you know, you were using, well, I, I tried to avoid it. Exactly. <laughs> but I just had to make the call. It's very weird. I just find the number of signs, the number of distractions, even yeah. advertising on the side of the road, I think should yeah. be... Yeah. Uh, a no-go, especially on the freeways where there's a lot of it at the moment. I know. And I know on the Tuller freeway there's one of those new digital signs and it just changes. You're sort of approaching it and all of a sudden something new comes up. It's like you're yep. watching a movie. Yeah, well, it's the same coming off the eastern. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, um, it's one of my bugbears. I don't yep. like it. Um, it used to be that someone who left a big gap in front of them was a safe driver. Now you know it's someone texting. Mm. Anyway, what can you do? Watching. Yeah, they're not watching. They've got to leave a bit of a gap. Anyway, don't do that, folks. Or they're playing Pokemon. Yeah, well, I'm not <laughs> downloading this app. You know, <laughs> I, it's uh, it's scary to me that you know we're we're all looking at these screens all the time and. Just because do. you download the app doesn't mean you're going to drive while playing it. Yeah, Ray's got the app. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a seven-year-old. <laughs> and he's using his child as an excuse. Absolutely. Hey. Is, there one, hey. is there one in here right now? Ray, I hate Where to break it? it to you, but everyone in this room has either a seven- or eight-year-old, and, and we don't the rest it. of us yep. don't have it. <laughs> we, 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 neither, we neither endorse nor otherwise uh, <laughs> the, the, the use of this particular game or the company that made it or any, any of that. You know, all that crap. Anyway, let me talk to you about something I I found uh, really interesting this week, and that was um, a, a new measurement of just how sensitive our, our eyes are. Um, this is something that's sort of plagued people for a while, trying to work out what's the dimmest thing that we can look at. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we've we've done experiments over the years of, you know, small flashes of light and so forth, and people can still measure them and, and see them and, and recognise them. And it's sort of a, this limiting factor. And so, well, okay, just how far down can you go? Um, in a... Um, some experiments done by Rockefeller University in New York by Ali Pasha Vaziri, um, who's a physicist actually, not a biologist. He has looked at what is the limit, literally the limit of the optical system. Now, the only way to really do that is to look at the smallest bit of light you can get, which is a single particle of light or a photon, and just use one of them. And the question is, if I was to shoot one of those at your eye, just one, so you're in a completely black environment, would you actually be able to detect it? Mm -hmm. 
And because this seems quite extraordinary, but mm-hmm. what you've got to remember is that, you know, the, the systems in the eye are designed to work on the basis of a photon or a few photons actually having a, an effect on part of the eye and that transmitting a signal to, to the brain. So, so in theory, it should sort of work, but we know in reality the difficulty of seeing single photons, you know, in fact, it's very hard to make a detector, a, a, a silicon based detector to actually detect one photon. It's even harder to actually make a single photon <laughs> um, because you have to do it in a way that guarantees you never have two. And if you really want to do this experiment, now people can do that now. That's it's quite doable. Um, so what they did was they they took a group of people and they they shot single photons at them one at a time, and they played. Uh, so they got they either got a photon or they didn't, and they played two tones. And what they had to do was say, did you see the photon when the first tone? was sounded or the second or not at all and they had just over two around two and a half thousand trials of this and what they found was on average we were a bit better than chance so we could actually you know the statistics of this were such that we're a little bit better than 50 50 on this so we're actually seeing it seems as though we're seeing these individual photons and if you then sort of looked a bit further into it and asked the participants you know there were times when you seemed really sure if you looked at the stats on those times when they actually really thought they'd seen something, then it was up to about 60%. So, you know, the stats are really saying, well, hang on, actually, something's happening here. This is not just random. Something's happening. Then there was an additional feature that they found, and that was if you'd been given a single photon about 10 seconds earlier, you were more likely to detect the next one. So it was like you were kind of primed for it. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe that's the eye adjusting over time, but these people were in a dark room for a while before this experiment was done. So it's it's not like, you know, oh, their irises opened up and all of a sudden the photons were getting through. Um, it seemed as though there was sort of something a bit more um, more specific. And, in fact, when you do the stats on the 60% scenario, the, the chance of that actually happening by fluke, you you saying yes when it actually happened, was about 0.1%. So, okay. you know, it's a very low chance of you just randomly saying, oh, yeah, I saw one and getting it right. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, is you might ask, well, well, why is it only 60%? You know, if we can see these things, why are we getting such a low number? Shouldn't it be, you know, 80 or 90%? And that comes back to the physics of what's actually happening. So you've got to remember, photons are absorbed as they travel through the eye. So only some of them actually get to the retina. And when you're talking about a single photon, its actual chance of getting through all the different layers of the eye and getting to the retina is actually fairly low. So the fact that it's 60% in that regard, even though you shot one at the person, means it's actually quite good because a lot of those photons, even though you fire them at the person's eye, they actually never got through the cornea. Is that what dependent it, on the photon or dependent on the person as to which ones? Well, that's just, it's just literally the, the, the physics or the statistics of it. So is there an encounter between the photon and the atomic structure of the various parts, components, you know, the, the vitreous humor, you've got the, the, the lens, you've got the yep. cornea, all these different surfaces, mm. and, and the photon has to go through. And, and you know yourself when you look through a window of glass or something, it's not as bright as, as if it wasn't there. There's mm. some absorption, and at various frequencies, there's more absorption than at other frequencies. So there is, there is some of the photons being lost on the way through. So, so this is a very interesting study because cool. it kind of says, yes, we can detect a single photon, and it kind of puts to bed the, I mean, I'm sure there'll be more tests of that principle, but in a way it puts to bed the idea of, you know, how low can we go? Well, if we can get to a single really photon, low. <laughs> you can't have half a one. So, you know, this is a fundamental particle. You can't get any smaller than a single photon. Mm. So our eyes can detect an individual photon, which is 
absolutely useless to us in day-to-day <laughs> life. Well, uh, but it's very interesting to know just, just how the eye has evolved yeah. at that, at that yeah. point where it can do that. I, I so. wonder how much they look at individual variation. I guess the other thing that I'm interested in is how you would compare different people in different parts of the world. Because mm. you can imagine some parts of the world where people actually are out and about in really low-light conditions. In fact, may even be hunting in low-light conditions. Do they have different abilities to sense really low-light conditions yeah, compared so to someone who's living in a city who's completely exposed to too much light all the time? Or, I wonder. Or, yeah. or, a, or a place where there's a thinner ozone layer. Yeah, more all those things, right? So yeah. that would be really interesting to know whether there's actually some uh, morphological differences between people mm. in different parts of the world. So, and, and there could well be, but I think what you, you're talking about there is an evol- evolutionary yeah. change yep. over a very short period yep, in course. which we're spread across across the planet whereas you know if you looked at certain species for example mm. um so deep sea species for example yeah. will, will have an incredible ability to detect yeah. low light levels um whereas those that live in equatorial zones will not um, yeah yeah sun's always out you know yeah no, <laughs> absolutely so so there will there will be differences be between different species but um it's, it's fascinating stuff and, absolutely. Not, and, and i have to say from the, the physics perspective of this dealing with single photons it's a very, very difficult experiment to do because you actually they create they create pairs of photons. They always create two, and they send one to a detector and one to the eye. That way, they're sure that one actually went to the eye. You have to correlate it. You have to be sure because you're testing a single particle. It's, it's mind-blowing stuff. stuff. It's mind-blowing. amazing. And I, I've just never heard of a biological element being the detector yeah. of a single photon of light. Yeah. That's quite incredible. Humans are amazing things. Now we need to try it on a mouse. Probably do the same thing. Yep. <laughs> just, to, just to belittle us. Um, the only thing is getting the mouse to say, yep, I saw one. Yeah. <laughs> Give me was, some cheese. I was picturing trying to do that with a deep sea animal. I was thinking, yeah. what animal could you get in this chamber and trying to get it to hit a, yeah. hit a lever? Yep, saw yep. one. Yeah, saw one. Saw one. Blood, <laughs> fishes aren't very responsive, typically. No. No, no, <laughs> Triple. Uh, you are listening to the Street Triple Arts Einstein and Gogo. In the studio with us at the moment is Dr. Tracy Heng from the, who is the, the head of the Stem Cells and Translational Immunology Laboratory at the Monash Biomedical Discovery Institute at Monash University. Welcome. It's, it's a mouthful, isn't it, Tracy? <laughs> <laughs> and I left half of it out. Well done. <laughs> um, also in the Department of Anatomy and Developmental Biology. Where do you sit? <laughs> I don't know how you keep keep your head on straight. Now, you you um, have just been awarded uh, this week one of the 2016 Metcalf Prizes for Stem Cell Research. Congratulations on much. that. That's an incredible achievement. Um, must have been a big thrill to get it from a Nobel Prize winner. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and so tell us a bit about what's the award given for. So the award um, recognizes <coughs> achievements in stem cell research, um, and so it was a really nice recognition actually of mm. my work um so yeah and it's given to a male and a female researcher okay and um this is the third year that they've they've done it mm. yeah and it's fantastic because it's 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 great support yeah 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 all right now let's talk a bit about your um your your work mm-hmm. um it's related to the issues involved in bone marrow transplants so let's start there just to give people an idea of why bone marrow transplants are a problem and you know what they're used for yeah so um bone marrow transplantation has been used in the clinic for actually many years now to treat various kinds of um, blood cancers and other forms mm. of, um, um, I guess, non-cancerous blood disorders. And the, um, the radiotherapy and the chemotherapy that 
a patient has to receive in order um, to undergo the transplant. Um, that treatment is actually really quite um, harsh mm. for the body and it actually um, depletes the immune system as well. And so um, in, in older patients, there are changes um, in the immune system that makes the recovery from this procedure um, prolonged and mm-hmm. that's not what we want because the longer it takes for your immune system to recover, um, the more susceptible you are to infections. And so is, isn't the requirement that you dull down the immune system during the, the transplantation to avoid rejection? So that's that's the goal, isn't it, to actually kind of knock it out for a period? Yes, yes. And in younger patients, it just it pops back up. And well, <laughs> I wouldn't say they pop back up. I mean, it is a, a harsh procedure. Yeah. So, so it takes it takes a while for the immune system to recover. But um, in older patients, um, the time it takes to recover is, is particularly delayed. <coughs> So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really interested in um, trying to find ways that we can, we can sort of shorten this period um, mm. okay. so that we can make it more effective in, in older patients. How do stem cells come into this? So um, a bone marrow transplant is essentially um, a transplant of um, hematopoietic stem cells. So mm-hmm. hematopoietic stem cells come from the bone marrow. And so um, I think... Bone marrow transplantation is, 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 is the more common usage, but if you want to be accurate, it's about hematopoietic stem, stem cells, cells, really. Yeah. And so hematopoietic stem cells are the stem cells that give rise to um, the lineages of um, immune... Uh, that, well, the cells that make up the immune system, right. basically. Right. And, and so what do we need to do? Because obviously if we're just transplanting these into another person's body, that body will try and reject them. As you say, you dull down the immune system so it doesn't happen. So you're working on ways in which you can trick the body into allowing this? Is that the, well, I'm, I'm is looking that the key? At, I'm, I'm looking at um, several <laughs> aspects, if you like. And um, my previous work has um, looked at how we can better protect a major organ in a body that produces um, T cells, which is this um, white blood cell that protects us against um, infections. Mm-hmm. And so the th- it's called the thymus. And the, the thymus actually does undergo quite a lot of changes um, with age. And mm-hmm. we have looked at ways to sort of protect the thymus, if you like. Um, okay. And um, and one of the ways we've looked at is to sort of find a um, a conditioning um, treatment regime that um, doesn't really or doesn't further damage um, the thymus in older recipients. And and so um, one of ways one of the ways to do that is to use um, sort of a lower dose of of chemotherapy that. Um, you know, it doesn't further damage the thymus, but is also um, effective enough for mm. stem cell transplantation. So, to, so to take one, place. one question on that is: when, when you talk about dose of chemotherapy, mm. I mean, in many areas of medicine, when when I've sort of pushed a bit about, how did you determine that dose? And so, that, well, it's the one that works for everyone. Uh, you know, it's it's not a personalised response in many cases. Now, I'm not sure about what it's like for for this particular area, but are we making sure that we're optimising the dose at the moment for the individual? And as you said. It seems as though we could use a lower dose to achieve the same goal. I mean, how close are we to optimising the dose at this point? Because it seems as though we've been hitting this thing with a sledgehammer for a while, and, and in some patients it's, it's maybe not necessary. Yeah, so, I mean, um, low-dose chemotherapy has been used in the clinic for a little while now, I mean, because doctors have realised that um, 
you know, older patients don't really respond well to high doses of chemotherapy. Mm. So, so low doses have been used in the clinic for a little while. And, and so, um, but I work mainly in mouse models and, and I'm really aware that sometimes it's difficult translating the doses that we use in animals to the clinic. But, um, oftentimes to find a dose that does work, you have to do a dose titration. What we mean? call it dose titration. So we, 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 we look at what's being used in the clinic and then we will um, um, sort of um, reduce the doses, right. uh, the dose from there. And so we, we, we could test like three or four doses and, and pick the dose that would still work. Mm. Um, mm. So the readout would, you know, sort of be equivalent to what an, a higher dose might give you. Mm. So that's how we picked our dose. Look, it's interesting stuff. I mean, it's, it's great to hear all this work going on with stem cells. And I think um, the more we understand the complexities of this, the better, because it's an area that obviously is used very commonly in treatment and one where the, the, it seems as though the understanding is not quite where we would like it to be. And as you say, when you get at risk patients, like the, the elderly patients, mm-hmm. their systems just can't handle it. How long do you think it'll be until some of this stuff that you, you won the water and so forth actually mm-hmm. ends up being utilised in the clinic, or has that already started? Um, uh, one of one of the um, applications that um, I guess my, my work has potential for is, um, a ca- um, is in organ transplantation, mm-hmm. believe it or not. Yeah. So um, uh, there, are, there are groups in the States that have found that if you were to use a um, low-dose chemotherapy um, and do a stem cell transplant along with that, you can actually, um, uh, I guess, rebuild the immune system to allow um, a trans, uh, a, a, an organ from a, a donor to mm, add, uh, mm. without the use of immunosuppressive right, yeah. drugs long-term. Yep. And so that actually... Um, is being trialled in, in the States Fabulous. at yeah. the moment. And so there are several applications. So if you can lower the dose um, of what is a very harsh um, treatment, mm. there are actually several applications that can come out of that, mm. um, not just for bone marrow transplantation. I think that's great. Yeah. Tracy, thanks so much for talking to us today and good luck with the continued work and continue, uh, congratulations again on getting the award. Thank you very much for having me. Tracy Hing is from the Department of Anatomy and Development of Biology at Monash University. In the studio, we have Professor Stefan Pearson, who is from the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne. Stefan, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much. Now, you're working on basically the way plants produce their their walls and their structures. Um, Tell us a bit about how that happens normally. I mean, I, I just hear plants grow. Uh, the, the, the bio people in the room are looking at me like, what? There's more to it. How do plants lay down the structures that allow them to build into, you know, into trees and plants and everything? Yeah, so, um, cell walls, you can kind of consider it a skeleton of plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so basically each, well, in contrast to our skeleton where you like basically hook up your muscles and so forth too, uh, each cell in, in the plant is actually surrounded by a cell wall. Right. right. Yep. So, um, also, like one of the most important component of the cell wall is cellulose. It's actually the focus of, of our research. And you can kind of um, envision that as a biological steel wire. Okay. So it's actually a tensile strength of steel. So depending on how the cell is producing that around itself, uh, of course, that will also determine the morph- morphology of, mm. of the cell, right? So mm. it's basically, you know, you can... Um, 
kind of see it as a corset for the cell. So once it's expanding, it can only expand in one direction if the corset is squeezing it, basically, right? Mm. So that's why you have slender and tall plants. Right. And, and, and how, do, how do plants know, you know, what cell walls to lay down at different times? Because presumably it's it's different at different times in their growth cycle. You, get, you know, you, you pull an onion out when it's just starting to grow, it has one type of cell wall, and you pull it out later and it's different. Mm. So how, how do they do that? Um, that's a very good question. I think uh, it's <laughs> it's not very well understood how that is actually controlled. So uh, a lot is based upon hormones. Mm-hmm. So so certain hormones will trigger certain types of cell walls being deposited. But you could imagine that you need some form of flexibility in the wall when you're growing, right? So you don't want to have like basically mm. a, um, a concrete wall around you yep. when you're trying to grow. So you would need to have some flexibility in growing plants, but then there are tissues inside of the plant that needs to be strong. So right. once the cells have stopped growing, you basically want to, you know, put the concrete in there mm. basically mm. to to make them sturdy. So. Now, now you've just uh, published a paper in Nature Communications. Congratulations! Oh, thanks. And this is on basically looking at the the amount of cellulose that is made by various plants and how that's controlled. T- tell us a bit about what what you've sort of. Uh, come across in this paper? I mean, what's new that we know now that we mm. didn't know before? So so maybe um, before getting into the paper, I want to step back mm-hmm. perhaps um, one step. So, so currently, you know, what we're trying to understand is basically like how this process is working, right? So it's a little bit like a, understanding how a car engine is working. So the first thing you want to kn- know is basically what are the components that are necessary to actually make this engine run? Uh, and that's a little bit at the stage that we currently are at. So we're trying to identify components that are actually involved in making cellulose. So this paper specifically is about some new components that are involving assembling basically the the protein complex that is making cellulose mm, okay and and what i mean what have we found there because it's something uh, presumably we 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 know a bit about how these things are fabricated but how do we control that i mean is that possible now can we sort of say okay i want to grow i want to start growing plants mm. that that produce more cellulose and faster mm. i mean is that is that the level of understanding we we have now um, not really. I, th- I think we're still like uh, on the component level. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, okay, we're leg- laying out like all these like engine parts and saying like, okay, we need this, 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 and this. Uh, but then the problem is like, how do you actually assemble this into a functional engine? Mm. Uh, and currently we're trying to like more understand like what are the basic components? So I think... Um, the discovery we've made in this paper were more like uh, an initial attempt to find components that are involved in actually assembling the core complex of this. Right, right. All right, so, so I, the level of our understanding just kind of blew my mind because I, I know what else we do with cellulose, and I'm kind of amazed we're able to do any of it. Because from we will take cellulose and use genetically modified bacteria to make ethanol out of it. Mm. So we'll take cellulose, so we're going to basically take the engine rip it apart some different way and get something out of it that it doesn't sound like was originally part of the original components. So does your work, can it inform how to do subsequent post-plant processing like ligonocellulose to ethanol or cellulose to ethanol processes? Does it have implications there as well? Because that's kind of a very much trial empirical approach mm. to... Yeah, so we're slowly getting to that point, I would say. So, you know, people are trying to basically... Uh, tweak the level of lignin versus mm-hmm. cellulose, for example, in a wall and to make basically the cellulose more accessible for, you know, degradation or enzyme digestion and so forth. And of course, that's, that's what you want in the end. You want to have like, you know, plant biomass that you can just like 
basically like pull out all the sugars and leave the rest away, right? And then ferment that, of course, to, to ethanol. Hmm. So, so we, we were talking briefly out in the green room when you first arrived about this issue that's, that's a pretty big one. You know, we, we hear about all the time where, you know, food crop areas are being cleared for, and, and in fact, in some cases, old growth forests are being cleared for the production of biofuels. Mm. I mean, how does this work sort of uh, get into that? Because it seems to me as though if you can have better control over the the type of structures being created here, then maybe you can kill two birds with the one stone and not have to eliminate one to do the other. Is that is that where we're heading? Um yeah, uh, I, I guess that's, that's the <laughs> goal, said, right? You so, said that with so much confidence. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so so currently we're, we're having this kind of first-generation uh, biofuel crops, right? And uh, there you mm. have a competition between food versus fuel, in mm. a sense, and I guess that's what, what the main topic is about uh, currently when people are discussing it. So with, with the cellulosic uh, biofuel, you would have like the second-generation biofuel crops where you basically grow really fast growing grasses typically and you will just harvest that and digest that material and get as much as possible like cellulose out of that. Mm. So so there's basically like three levels that we're we're you know seeing as problematic currently. So one is of course the biomass. So you have to make that more accessible for getting the sugars out. So currently people are doing that by boiling it in acid, for example, to get like all the sugars out or you try to degrade it with hydrolytic enzymes to get it out. But mm-hmm. it's a very uh, financially um, awkward process, you can yeah. call it. So it's, it's a pretty costly process. And then, of course, the next step would be to actually b- build the plants, like large-scale plants, for this to occur. And then this, the third tier would be a political one, where you try to like implement this yeah. in the society. Right? Yeah, that's not how the law. The third one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's for another program. Anyway. Yeah, that's a whole different show. Right. Um, Stefan, it's 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 really interesting stuff. I mean, I I love hearing about this sort of what I would call elemental understanding of of biology because there's a lot of that that still needs to happen. It seems in in so many fields and and even something as simple as plant growth and so forth. I mean, you, we've heard a lot about photosynthesis and, and mm-hmm. things like that of late, and people's finally trying to work out how this actually works. Mm-hmm. And and it sounds like you guys have made a really big step here. So congratulations! Uh, it's great to get that Patreon in in nature, and um, good luck with the work in the future. Thank you very much. Three. Chicago. Now, in the studio, we have from the University of Melbourne, Peter Rayner, who is from the School of Earth Sciences. Peter, welcome to Triple R. Thanks. Now, you're working on an area that we've covered a lot in the Triple uh, R studios around climate and climatology and changes in climate. And in particular, you've been looking at particular bubbles in, in ice from historical sites. Tell us first, how do you, where, where do you get the ice? I mean, wh- what ice are you looking at? Most of the ice we're looking at is drilled from the Antarctic. Mm-hmm. So you have two different kinds of, uh, of approaches here. Uh, the ice lays down um, a history of the atmosphere mm. as it traps yeah. bubbles. And if it snows a lot, then you don't get a very uh, long record back in time, but you get a lot of detail. And if it snows very slowly, like in the very famous Vostok core, you get these really long records, but you don't get much detail. And what we focused on here is some rather shorter records that have really much finer detail about how climate's changed in the past. So, so run us through how that snow scenario works. So if, you, if, it, if it's snowing slowly, you're building, is that because you're building up the layers, you know, those, those tree rings very, very slowly and trapping a lot of 
um, the atmosphere from different periods? Is that how it That's works? right. So the records get very smeared out mm. if, uh, because the, the bubbles don't form all at once. They form slowly and get trapped slowly. So if the snow is forming very slowly, uh, when you take a horizontal slice through the ice, you'll see some air from this year and some air from last year and some air from maybe 100 or 1,000 years ago depending on the thickness. So you can kind of look at these, these, as you said, tree rings, these annual layers in the ice, and they'll give you a pretty good measure of a, a calendar, really, backwards in time, or a clock. And that was going to be my next question. You, you know, with the tree ring, we know there's one per season. How do you distinguish year to year, or, or what is the, the, the sort of time measure in, in this particular sequence? I mean, if it, it seems to me as though in some parts of Antarctica it could just be snowing more or less every other day. So if it's, if it's really fast, then you do indeed get some changes over the season, and particularly you get some changes in temperature. Mm. So the snow is very fine and very uh, um, aerated yep. parts of the yep. year and other parts of the year that the ice almost melts. Right. So that uh, you get these kind of semi-sealed layers in between. And the other thing is there are a whole bunch of markers whose timing we know, and they're usually volcanoes. So you go back in time and suddenly there's this layer of ash and dust and so on and the ice goes, ah, yes, you know, that's Mount Etna in 413 right. or that's Vesuvius or something like that. And you, you, you can see these things pretty globally. Mm. Now, I, I've, I've seen pictures of some of these ice cores, but they might get you to explain to our listeners what they kind of look like because we're not talking about, you know, digging a couple of feet down here, are we? We're talking about it quite a, a substantial sort of rod of ice. Yeah, these are really long. So the, some of the most famous ones in the world, again, are, are some cores that were drilled from the central plateau of the Antarctic where the ice can be several kilometres thick. Mm. So, And that, that core has taken 20-plus years to drill um, because it's got to be done rather carefully. Uh, you don't want to disturb the ice when you're drilling it. And uh, hauling ice up from three kilometres under the surface when it's minus 70 degrees and that kind of stuff is no fun. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something you should get someone else to do. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Yeah. Someone else did. <laughs> Good work. Um, now, in terms of what you, you saw, though, I mean, you, you pull this, these bubbles, so obviously bits of the atmosphere from various time periods out of the ice cores. I mean, what, what did that tell us? So... The technology for this stuff keeps evolving, and every mm -hmm. few years we learn how to measure a new chemical in the atmosphere that's been there in, in, in the past. So um, very famously, really back in the 60s, someone had the idea of measuring carbon dioxide in the past, so you could have a look at the, the history of the greenhouse effect. And then a bit later on, we saw these quite large changes, um, both over the historical period and particularly into and out of the ice ages as we go back in time a long way. But even in the last couple of thousand years where the atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide before we started mucking with the system has been pretty stable. There are these quite interesting changes as the climate on, of the Earth has changed. And uh, we asked why that happens. And it turns out that uh, there's now an, a, a suite of other things we can measure in the atmosphere uh, that will tell us information about if the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere changed, something changed on the surface. Mm -hmm. uh, something controls that atmospheric concentration and it's usually uptake or release from the land or the ocean. And there's another thing we can measure which is um, without getting too technical, different isotopes, so atoms with different numbers of neutrons, of carbon that will tell us whether it's the land or the ocean that's responsible for the change. And then the question was what's responsible, and we discovered a few years ago that the change was driven by the land. Then the question is, what's driven the land change? So is this a human or a climate signal? And that was a debate that's been raging for a few years, uh, the changes that occurred around 15 to 1700 um, that could have been driven either by 
human signals, mm-hmm. uh, essentially changes in deforestation rates, or by climate signals. And we've managed to measure a new species, of, or our collaborators have in the last few years, that is an indicator of how much plant growth is happening on the surface of the Earth. Okay. So it's, it's effectively a measure of the amount of photosynthesis. And that showed, uh, that gave us a chance to test this historical idea. If this was a climate signal, if this was a historical signal, then we'd expect that as the population in the Americas was essentially decimated by smallpox and gunpowder as, as, <laughs> right. the, as the Spaniards yep. arrived, um, their agricultural production went down, the yeah. amount of forest went up, and we would have expected photosynthesis to go up. And measuring this chemical in the atmosphere told us that, in fact, no, the amount of photosynthesis went down. So it turns out that this change that we saw around the Little Ice Age, 15 to 1700, wasn't a human signal. It was a climate signal. And so we were able to understand something about the way climate and the concentrations of greenhouse gases are coupled in the atmosphere. Mm. I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, does that, does that mean... Uh, it, I mean, we know it's not humans. Do we know what it was at that particular time that caused this change in climate, or was it just a gradual change? It sounds like it was quite quite a punctuated point in our climate history. Yeah, it was punctuated. Now, the changes that we measured were um, numerically equivalent to the changes that we see in only a few years at the moment, but that's more a testimony to how hard we're whacking the system at the moment mm. rather than how, how rapidly things have changed in the past. It's really the, the human change that we've seen in the Industrial Revolution is, is orders of magnitude faster than most things we're used to. But these changes were, in geological terms, yes, pretty rapid. And we're pretty sure it's temperature. We're pretty sure that the, the plants don't like it really cold mm. so that the amount of production went down. But this raises an interesting paradox because the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere also went down. So although there was less photosynthesis, less growth of plants pulling stuff out of the atmosphere. There was even less decomposition from soils. So the stuff that was being pulled out of the atmosphere was staying down there much longer. So this gave us a clue about the sign of the interaction. When temperatures go up in the future, which they undoubtedly will, what's that going to mean for the amount of carbon dioxide that's being stored away from the atmosphere by plants and soils on land? And the news isn't good. Uh, it, it suggests that as the, pl- as the climate warms in the future, some of that carbon that's being stored in the soils will be released back to the atmosphere. Yeah. And, and w- I mean, what sort of levels of carbon are we, are we talking about? Because we, we often hear about, you know, what will be released. I mean, how does that compare to, you know, when we talk about the release of this carbon, how does that compare to what we're actually doing as a species ourselves? I mean, is it a, a, an order of magnitude larger, smaller, around the same amount a year? Or? So the changes that we saw coming into and out of the Little Ice Age were, uh, and we saw them changing over about 50 to 100 years, we're not exactly sure what, because even these these high-resolution records are a bit smeared, mm-hmm. is equivalent to the change that we see over only maybe five, seven years or something from from uh, anthropogenic change, from human, from human impact. And as I said, that's a comment not so much on how sensitive the natural system is, but just how hard we're crunching the system yeah. at the moment. Yeah. So... The question uh, that this raises, though, because the temperature change in the Ice Age wasn't very big either. It's much smaller than we expect from climate change in the future. So the question now is, what does it tell us about how much extra carbon is going to be released from these soils into the future mm. as the climate warms? And that is significant. It's, it's not. It's not dramatic. It doesn't. It doesn't make it impossible for us to stabilize climate or anything like that. This is. This isn't suddenly one of these disastrous tipping points but it's just made our problem a little bit harder mm. and, and certainly knowing 
what these levels will be and knowing what's going to happen is, is important if we're going to do anything at all. I mean, we don't want surprises in this game at the moment, do we? I mean, the, the more we know, the, the better we'll have a chance to do something about it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it, um, what I lose sleep about overnight in, these, in this kind of climate area is not so much that we won't be able to get on top of the problem. I think we, we probably can. It's that something we don't know is going to bite us. Mm. And every few years something turns up, whether it's the loss of Arctic sea ice yeah. or the possibility of permafrost melt or something like that that poses a really nasty surprise and say, hey, is this problem suddenly much harder than we thought? Because if it's not, then it'll be a struggle. But But I remain optimistic we can do it. It, Mm. It's just what we don't want, as you said, is is a very nasty surprise. This one's not a very nasty surprise. It's confirming something we kind of suspected anyway, just Mm. on theoretical grounds. Um, We had no really direct evidence of it, so we've been able to kind of clinch the deal. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Peter, just uh, in the last 30 seconds before I let you go, I just wanted to know, once you've got these ice cores and you sort of, you have them in the lab, I mean, how do you, do you store each little bit in a little vial, I mean, and keep it forever? How does, how does that work? I mean, this stuff's got to be carefully stored to make sure it's not contaminated. Yeah, it's got to be very carefully stored. It's a, and, and particularly as we're getting to measure more and more scarce things. So these things are basically stored, uh, wrapped in multiple layers of plastic. And the main thing is to keep them really cold. So they're, they're often yep. kept in, in commercial fridges, you know, kept at minus 40, minus 50, the kind of temperatures they were they were dragged out at so that they don't have any nasty changes. And um, every so often uh, a commercial refrigeration plant breaks down and there's mass panic in the climate community. <laughs> I can imagine there would be. Well, hopefully there's some uh, backups to make sure that doesn't actually occur. Uh, Peter Rayner, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us about this. It's, I, I find any of this um, ice core stuff just absolutely fascinating. Um, good luck with the further work, and let's hope you're right about us uh, keeping on top of some of these problems and being, and being hopeful that there's a solution for us in the future. Thanks a lot. Peter is from the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Peter, just hang about there for a few minutes and we'll uh, we'll, we'll get you out of the studio in a moment. Uh, Dr. Jean, you had something you wanted to mention that's coming up? Yep, I just wanted to let all our listeners know that the University of Melbourne is getting in on the National Science Week party and we are having our own science festival from the 15th to the 19th of August. There's loads of events, they're all free, many of them are open to the public. So if you want to have a look, check out festival.science.unimelb.edu.au. Things like Professor Tim Flannery is kicking off uh, the festival, then there's a great talk on the science of earthquakes, there's a screening of some of the best international science film festival films there's a brain teaser competition i'm giving a talk um, about our senses and some of the weird things that our senses uh, trick us uh, about uh, on the 19th of august so yeah come along there's all sorts of good stuff so go to dr jen's talk at the very least festival.science.unimelb.edu.au sounds fantastic and actually as part of science week we will be having amy shearer title here in the studio in a couple of weeks time she's coming out to australia so we're pretty excited about that and I don't know, I'll work something out extremely special. Dr Ewan and I will be here and we will, um, I don't know, we might just bask in the glory of, of someone who has 30,000 Twitter followers or something like that, eh? That's a good plan, I think. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that. Uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 R. We're going to say goodbye. We'll be back again next week. Remember, science is everywhere and thank you so much for listening to 3 R. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. Einstein and Gogo is presented by Squarespace, a scientific way to create a beautiful website with designer templates, an easy-to-use interface, and a free domain name. 
To start your free trial, go to squarespace.com. Use offer code RRR to save 10%. Squarespace, triple R sponsors.